if you're not qualified, if you're not trained to do this, you won't get it right in the first wash. So we'll have to do it again. So that's a big stressful situation on that animal and if it wasn't stabilized beforehand it could actually be too much for them and they won't survive in the end this is defender radio i'm michael howie and this is defender radio the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the fur bears you know, it's just about impossible to be Canadian and not hear about pipelines, oil leaks, tankers, and other environmental and political hot potatoes in British Columbia and Alberta. But in many of these debates, regardless of which side you fall on, there's often one element forgotten. Wildlife. The impact of oil and other materials on wildlife can be extreme and there is little in the way of support for the professional and volunteer rehabilitators who try to help the animals. Fortunately, training is available, and there are dedicated individuals and organizations who work tirelessly to help animals who come into contact with oil. To discuss what specialized treatment is required, how animals are able to recover from oil spills and other incidents, and what the public can do to help, Defender Radio is joined by Linda Bacher of the Wildlife Rescue Association. What are the situations regarding oil that can lead to damage mm-hmm. to animals? Because I think we all have in our heads the picture of, you know, the seagull or the water bird um, covered yeah. in oil on the seashore. But that's a very limited view of what's actually possible mm-hmm. and what does happen. So what's the range that we can see? Well, it all it's, it, it ranges from the one-off oiled bird um, that simply goes into a dumpster with vegetable oil from a restaurant, like we see that a lot, (laughs) which has nothing to do with crude oil. Um, They get into oily puddles at at a gas station or a car mechanic shop. Um, And then you have smaller spills, like a small uh, truck um, crashes on the road and you have a small spill that goes into a puddle or a stream or a lake. Um, you have illegal dumping of stuff. Any any contaminant is bad. Oh, lots of contaminants are bad for feathers mm-hmm. and for fur. So uh, we've seen, you know, small ponds with ducks on it that get uh, contaminated with with uh, illegal dumping of of things. Um, and then you have the inland spills of potentially a pipeline bursting or a, a rail. Um, a railway car that has oil in it um, crashes and creates a spill. It's It really is. There's a lot of ways this can happen and a lot of different species yeah. it can affect, uh, which as yeah. I said, I think yeah. we, we a lot of us, uh, and I can speak from my personal experience, when you first hear about oiled wildlife, that's what you have in your head. But there are just so many different things. And I know my, my colleague Marcy gets uh, very, very frustrated with dumpster-related uh, wildlife right. issues. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I said, we get that. We see that a lot. The, the one one gull or one pigeon or one crow gets into the garbage at the at a restaurant and gets oiled from from just cooking oil. Now, I, yeah. I I'm going to ask this, and I know there is a a very logical answer to it. So I hope that uh, you and our listeners don't think I uh, I'm coming from such a place of ignorance, uh, but. <laughs> When we talk about oiled fur and feathers, 
Um, I think, you know, I get, uh, I'll use the example of motor oil or cooking oil. I get that on my skin. I can rinse it off. Uh, Why is it so hazardous for these animals? You know, especially I think when we look at, you know, a a mammal like a beaver or uh, uh, any water birds that are kind of designed, so to speak, to have water and stuff on them and come off. Why is it so hazardous to them? Yeah. So um, with, with, uh, furred animals and with birds that have feathers, um, they are designed uh, that water does not reach their skin. So the feathers and the fur are designed specifically to keep the water out and keep keep the body warm. So an oil destroys that that structure. They destroy the integrity of feathers and fur. Uh, specifically feathers have like an interlocking system. If you put feathers under a microscope, you can see little a little velcro type locking of the of all the little uh, feathers uh, and oil completely destroys that it it breaks it apart um, luckily it's not forever broken if you treat it well if you clean them well uh, it can be put back together again <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah the bird cannot do that itself by itself or a, or a, or a beaver cannot do that by itself it needs to be cleaned properly well, let's talk about what that process is. Of cleaning wildlife? Yes. Yeah. So when um, when an animal gets oiled, uh, it sort of depends how long it stays in the field before it gets rescued and sent to a re- rehabilitation facility or a spill response facility. Um, and for the first thing we do is uh, stabilize the animal. Uh, it could be that they have been out there for three days uh, getting hypothermic, not eating. Um, the oil could actually, it depends on the type of oil, it could affect their skin, like it could uh, burn their skin. So you need to stabilize the animal first by, with fluids, uh, medication if needed. Um, and then if all goes well, within 48 or 72 hours, you can actually start the cleaning process. Um, it's a very specific process that I would never recommend anyone doing by, by themselves. Um, we all think like, oh, the oil needs to come off, but no, we really need to look at the big picture first and make sure the bird is or the animal is stabilized and actually can get through this process. It's very, very stressful for an animal to go through this, um, wild animals specifically. So, um, but with the cleaning process, uh, the first step is to uh, rin- rinse off the oil with soapy water. So we actually do use Dawn dish soap. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of different soaps have been tested by um, rehabilitators that have a lot of experience in oil spill response. So and it comes out as the best way to get rid of oil from feathers and fur. Um, and it takes a few tubs of this soapy water and a special technique to to get the oil in, in or get the, the, the soap inside the feather so uh, the oil comes off. Um, when the oil is off, then you have a bird that's now soapy, <laughs> so <laughs> the soap needs to come off. Uh, and then, so that's the rinsing process. And then that rinsing needs to be, or the water needs to be specific temperature because uh, they can get hypothermic during this process. And... Um, the uh, the strength of the water or the pressure of the water needs to be a certain pressure so it actually blasts off the soap 
from the feathers. Uh, so the whole body needs to make, be made soap-free. Uh, so when that is done, they'll, they're put in a kennel or a little crate or cage with a pet dryer blasting on them uh, with warm, warm um, uh, air to dry them and make sure they don't get hypothermic in this process. And then um, they are clean, but still the feathers and the fur, they don't have that interlocking system quite yet. That's up to the animal to do. So they need to groom and preen themselves to get all these feathers realigned and nicely in place. So they have a lot of work to do as well. So that can take uh, one day, two days, three days, depending on the species, depending how well it's going. Um, and then they're, they're clean and waterproof again. Uh, then we will put them on, a, on water, on a pool to see how well they're doing, if they stay clean, if all the, all the oils actually come off, uh, and if they stay dry. And uh, if that's successful, they can be released. When we look at mammals, do they groom mm-hmm. themselves as well to, to get that oil coming back? Uh, sorry, the natural yeah. oils that they have? Yeah, and the natural oils is kind of like the uh, conditioning, mm-hmm. the conditioner that we use, like um, the grooming process itself, like the mechanical grooming or preening process is what, what makes the fur and the feathers waterproof. Okay. And then the oil afterwards is sort of um, conditions the, the fur and the feathers for, for long-term health. <laughs> well, yeah, I was thinking of uh, my dogs. Uh, as listeners know, I have mm-hmm. many dogs. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, two of them, uh, one is a lab, one's a lab mix, and they both have that oily undercoats. And that's a mm-hmm. big thing with them is, yes, you can bathe them, but if you bathe them too mm-hmm. much, you actually strip that from them and it's harmful to their skin Uh, but I was also even thinking with our little boys who like to go swimming a lot and do dock diving and stuff the process of drying them off um, yeah you know they don't always like it they don't like you know be standing (laughs) there and we're shoving treats in their face and there's towels Uh, if it's winter and we're doing indoor pools there's often a hot air dryer of some kind and these are dogs who are used to being handled who enjoy being handled being given treats who know that everything is safe and okay, and they're uncomfortable. So when I take that idea and then I apply it to, you know, a bird or or a mammal who Mm -hmm. doesn't know that everything's okay, that has never been this close to a person before, it must be very, very trying for them. Is is there anything you can do to ease that situation? Well, there's, I mean, when we have animals in care, um, they are, like you said, they're not used to being around people. They're not used to being in captivity. Um, There is not that much you can do to make them feel comfortable, except leave them alone as much as you can. We always cover the cage, uh, quiet. Uh, We are out of sight. Every time they see us, they think we're a big predator and, you know, their time is up. So... Um, like hands off is the best thing we can do. Um, but during the whole washing process, um, doing it fast, only having to do it once, uh, so that you don't, they don't have to go through the process again. Mm-hmm. is probably the, the best thing to do. So, you know, people with experience doing this fast and, uh, and once is, is our only option. And that's why we stabilize the animal first. So we know they can 
they can get through it because the stress really takes a toll on their on their overall health too. Yeah, and that stress can. Uh, uh, I I know in deer I have read that the stress of being confined can actually cause some kind yeah. of incident that can lead to death. I I have no idea what it's called now that I'm actually recording this, um, but I know yeah. there's a term for it. Yeah. There is, um, I can't um, come up with it either right now because it's we don't curse. treat deer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it actually affects their muscles and eats away their muscles. Um, also, deer are very stressed in captivity and, and they just bounce around so much that they injure themselves mm. even more. Um, here we see that the small birds are usually the, the ones that are highly stressed here. And yeah, they could... Um, get a heart attack in in captivity and yeah. die from it if you if you're handling them too much or if you're not careful. Well, sure. yeah. Th- that leads back into why we shouldn't try and help the animals ourselves. And this is a difficult conversation to have. And I'm sure it's one yeah. that you have on a near daily basis. I see it all the time in animal rights and vegan forums. Oh, I found this bird. What should I do? And my advice is always find your local rehabber, call your local SPCA, call animal control. Don't do anything until you yeah. talk to someone. Uh, yeah, and that's you're you're one of the people they call. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> in, in addition to just the stress of the situation, particularly with oiled wildlife, what can go wrong for people when they try and do this on their own without the extensive training, the permits, and all of the other processes that people like yourself, as uh, professional rehabilitators, mm-hmm. have? Yeah. Well, like I said, um, if you're not uh, qualified, if you're not trained to do this, you won't get it right in one in in the first wash. So whatever you're doing to help getting that oil off their skin or feathers, um, you won't you won't be successful because you don't know the proper technique. So we'll have to do it again. So that's a big stressful situation on that animal. And if the like I said, it wasn't stabilized beforehand it could actually be too much for them and they won't survive in the end. Um, if the animal has been out for a couple of days before it was found and brought to us, it probably didn't eat because what the thing that birds do and mammals do um, when they have oil on their feathers or skin, they want to get it off and they're frantically preening to get it off. So they don't eat properly and they're ingesting oil at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they are debilitated, they're emaciated. And if you are treating an emaciated animal, um, you're just eating away and they don't have the energy to recover. So nutrition wise, we also, we check their blood values before we do a big treatment like a, like a wash to make sure they have enough energy to go through this. So yeah, it could have detrimental uh, effects on animals if you try this yourself. And while this is primarily an issue that comes up, well, no, no, I'm going to rephrase that uh, because that is not accurate. This is an issue we hear about in in Alberta and British Columbia a lot due to simply the presence of uh, oil and gas industries being very predominant there. Mm -hmm. Uh, What should people do? And uh, this will apply everywhere else in Canada and the United States, but specifically in those regions, what should people do if they see an animal that they think has oil on them, uh, or if they see an, uh, some kind of oil spill, or if there's oil leaking out of a dumpster and there's a squirrel at it, what, what's the process typically? Right. Um, well, first of all, 
um, we want to stop the situation. If it's an active spill or leak, we want to make sure that that gets stopped first. So in BC, we have the BC uh, emergency spill line uh, that we advise people to call. Um, so that's the first course of action because we don't want this to continue. Um, and then second, you need to take your health and safety in consideration first. So don't dive into oil or substance that you don't know with your bare hands. Um, don't touch it. Uh, call someone. So call the SPCA, call your local rehabilitation center uh, for advice. Take pictures. That's a really good way for us to assess the situation. And then what we do, we have a team of of trained rescuers that have protection equipment, that have capture equipment and techniques that can help and assist in a situation like this. Not everybody has that luxury that we have centers able to, to send someone. So, But at least call it in. We'll make an assessment over the phone and take it from there. We'll walk you through it. And I do want to touch, There was there, we, we had discussed beforehand, as we all know, oil is a very big political issue, particularly in Western mm-hmm. Canada right now, and we're not going to go into the politics of it. There is mm-hmm. one government and political related question, though, that I think we do need to cover, and you agree, I believe, is how much money is set aside to help wildlife affected by oil spills or other type incidents? Um. It depends on where it happens, how it happens, and if there's a responsible party. So in, if there's a big spill and it's clear who the spiller is, who the responsible party is, then they will uh, pick up the tab. The tab. <laughs> mm-hmm. They will have to pay for it. Um, if there's not, then there's no money for it. And it all depends on the decision made by local governments, what is going to happen with the wildlife. And frequently we know that there simply isn't funding for these situations. Yeah. Uh, so That's people correct. who yeah. do want to help out, um, uh, I think financially is often the best way, much like in many other charities that have a very frontline approach you can distribute the funds best yourselves. Uh, I see the same mm-hmm. thing with food banks uh, that I try and donate to. And they say, you know, we can go out, we can buy five cans of soup for $5. Or you can spend $5 yeah. on three cans of soup. So just give us the $5. Um, yeah, exactly. So I know the same is yeah. true there for, for wildlife rehabilitators. Yeah. People who, who may not have money, who want to volunteer, who want to donate items. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask what they can donate. I'm going to ask what they should do if they're interested in doing that. Um, they should, uh, whoever you want to donate to, call them first to see what they need mm-hmm. uh, and go from there. Um, because, yeah, the, the equipment and the, the supplies that we use are very specific. So it's, it's hard for the public even to find those items to, to buy. So uh, there's always um, a number of items that we use. Everybody can buy. So give us a call first and see what we need. Um, and if you want to get involved into helping oiled wildlife during a spill, the best thing to do is get experience by volunteering at, a, at your local wildlife rehab center. To learn more about the Wildlife Rescue Association or how to get involved with them, visit wildliferescue.ca. That's it for this week, folks. I want to thank Linda for joining me and all of you for listening. 
please leave a review on iTunes. It goes a long way in helping new people find the show, and we might just have a contest with it soon. You can also support the show for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash Defender Radio. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Defender Radio.